Were you guys ready for the word this morning? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And Lord, as we uh, begin to dive into your word and study your word, Lord, I pray that we would be ready to receive what you would have for us. Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish inside of us what you intended to accomplish, and then we won't leave here the same way that we came in, Father. I pray that this never just becomes a, uh, a holy checklist. We came to church on Sunday morning like we were supposed to, but instead we would come hungry, waiting for what you have for us, Father, so that we can grow in maturity and in faith and revelation of who you are. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in our, our study of who we are as a church. And uh, we've gone through, I think, about six weeks now talking about that we're people who worship, we're people who pray, we're a people who uh, uh, are generous. Um, let's see, what were the other ones, Pastor Joseph? We had, uh, we're, we're saved by, by grace. Um, and we talked about who we are as a church. And then these last three weeks, we're going to dive into what is essentially our mission statement as a church. And uh, if you go on our website, you can see it. You'll see evangelize, equip, empower. And it goes something like this. We want to evangelize the lost, equip the saints, and then empower them to step out into the calling that God has for their life. That is our goal as a church. We want to get people saved. We want to help people become equipped and help them grow. And then we want to send them out into the ministry that God has for them. And, and that's our vision as a church. You know, we want to go ahead and raise up pastors and evangelists and teachers and, and uh, you know, worship team members and people that are helpers. We just want to go ahead and, and equip people to go ahead and do whatever God wants them to do. Amen? And here's the thing. The, the first part of that is to evangelize. You know, and you'll notice that the, the last four weeks we've been doing a study uh, uh, right after church on Sundays with Pastor Andy Elms. Joseph just announced it, and, and it's going to be the last one this week. But the whole point is to learn how to evangelize, particularly in a world that has changed quite a bit. You know, the, the, with the pandemic that came in and not wanting people to gather and get together, we have to look at things differently. But just because the world has changed doesn't mean our responsibility has changed. We still need to share with people. And here's the thing. If you're born again, you have the life of Christ inside of you. And how many know that Jesus loved people? Jesus loved people. That's why he gave his life. And that life is now inside of you. His life, his love inside of you should cause you to love like he loved. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul said this. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, you can actually cut out the middleman. Just be imitators of Christ, amen? Philippians 2, 3 through 8, he says, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So if you guys know and been here for a while, you know this is one of my favorite verses. This is the greatest relationship advice that you will ever get. You want to have a successful friendship? Treat the other person as more important than yourself. You want to have a successful, a successful family relationship with your brothers and sisters or your mom and dad? Treat them as more important than yourself. If you want to have a successful marriage, treat the other person as more important than yourself. The best relationship advice you'll ever get. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." This idea, this mind of considering others as more important than yourself, that's how we're supposed to be imitating Jesus. And it doesn't just go for relationships. When you see somebody walking down the street, you should treat that person as more important than yourself. That's what Jesus did, is he gave his life for every single person that, that, he, that, that we will see on this earth. He gave his life willingly for them. And the truth is, is that everything that we do as a church is with this goal in mind. And I, and I really mean that. And some things doesn't seem like that that would be the case. You say, Pastor Wayne, how does putting speakers up here and lights up here have that goal in mind? And the truth is, is that my goal with everything that we do in the church is I want to have somebody that comes in that doesn't know Jesus, they've never been to a church. I don't want to have anything in the way of them being able to receive the gospel. You know, if they come in and everything looks kind of dumpy and it doesn't look like we care, it doesn't look like we're putting our best foot forward, we're not trying to be excellent in everything that we do. You know, if you came into a church like that, you'd go, why do I want to be a part of this? You know, and, and I want to take every opportunity for people to have an excuse to not receive the gospel that I can. We just want to remove them all. So we want to do things with excellence. We want to, to make when people come in, they feel comfortable. That's why we, we don't turn big ceiling lights in on here in the, in the mornings because we want people to be able to worship without feeling like a spotlight's on them so they're not embarrassed. We want to take everything away that would get in the way of them having an experience with God. Amen? So really everything that we do is with that in mind, even things that don't seem like they would be. And the truth is, is that if we ever find ourselves in a situation where this stuff becomes the importance or programs become the importance, then we're doing things wrong. You know, church shouldn't be about programs. It should be about people. That's why I always reiterate over and over and over up here, we should be a family. You guys should be contacting each other throughout the week. This shouldn't just be a Sunday morning get-together. We should be acting like a family. It's the people and relationships that are, that are important. And everything that we do is, is focused towards that. Anything that we've done for outreach, now I realize that the pandemic has changed a lot about what we do. In the past, we've done food distribution outreaches. We've worked in the food banks. We've gone out um, and knocked on doors. We've gone out and tried to sing Christmas carols. We tried to do that this year. It was probably the worst <laughs> reception that we've had in years doing Christmas carols. People didn't want us showing up at their house. The pandemic has changed everything, but it doesn't mean that our responsibility has changed. So we just have to find different ways to be able to impact other people's lives to make a difference. Amen? Amen. Well, after that big old long introduction, let's go ahead and get started. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How many know this is what people refer to as the Great Commission? But in so many Christians' life, it ends up being the great omission because we don't actually ever go and talk to people and tell people about our faith. You know, one of the things that I've heard is, is if, if, if Christianity were, were to be made illegal tomorrow, 
would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, that's some of the questions that we should be asking ourselves. Do people even know that you're a Christian or do you try to hide it? Are you embarrassed about it? But the reality is, is that we have been given power to go out in the world to share the gospel with others. How many of you know that there's no greater authority other than Jesus? Only one person has authority over Jesus, and that's the Father. The Father gave Jesus all authority, and then he gave that authority to us. He says, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth and has been given to me. Now you go therefore. How many know that when you go in somebody's name, you go with their authority behind you? That's the reason why police officers have authority. It's not because individually they have authority, but it's because they've been sent out by the state. And the power of the state is behind them, which is why they have authority. Well, Jesus has all authority with no other authority above him except for the Father, and he delegates that authority to us. And we recognize that his authority comes from the Father, so if Jesus has given us that authority, there's nothing that can oppose that authority. And here's the thing. When you look at how Jesus exercises his authority, you see this. He exercises his authority to teach he exercised his authority to heal, to cast out demons, and he actually exercised his authorities to forgive sins. Now, I recognize that we don't have the authority to forgive sins, but we do have the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, which is the authority that Jesus has given us. And that's what we should be doing. And it shouldn't be just left to making converts. How many know that the Christian church is actually pretty good at making converts? We're terrible at making disciples in most cases. And that's not our goal. The, the Bible doesn't say go out and make converts of all nations. It says what? To make disciples of all nations. And that's what we're going to talk about as Pastor Joseph is ministering on equipping next week. He's really going to focus on that. We're going to go from, from uh, going ahead and reaching the lost and getting people saved, but then we also have to make sure that we disciple them. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. We're not just called to make converts. And the truth is, is that when we do, we're actually doing a very huge disservice to these new believers. Because the enemy is going to immediately begin to attack them as soon as they give their life to the Lord. And if we're not walking alongside of them, then they're alone to face those things. And that's why so many people fall away so quickly. And being a disciple is kind of like being an apprentice. You know, we have to walk alongside of them. We have to teach them and... and uh, those are the things that we need to do to make sure that we're being effective in what God has called us to do. Amen. And I won't get too much more into that because like I said, Joseph will talk about that next week. But the one thing that we'll see when we hear about this stuff, he says, go ahead and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the, name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You might think, well, no, he wasn't talking to, to us, Pastor Wayne. He was just talking to the disciples. And the truth is, is he was physically talking to the disciples, but you want to know how we know that it wasn't just for us? Or we're supposed to go out there and, and baptize them and teach them to do all that, that we've been commanded? In Acts 6, 2 through 6, it says, The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said it was not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. The two names that I want to point out is Stephen and Philip. 
Both of these young men weren't anything in the body of Christ as far as, as they weren't, uh, they, they certainly weren't one of the 12 disciples. They were just regular disciples. They were there to serve, and they started out their ministry serving soup to widows, essentially. They had no power or authority in the church, at least not as far as uh, uh, man-given power. They obviously, they were, had the authority of God behind them. Because that's what this says, that Jesus has given all of us authority to do the same things that he's done, cast out demons, to heal the sick, to see signs and wonders. And I, I know this because in Acts 6, 7 through 8, we begin to read about Stephen again. You remember, he, he was nothing. And then he just started serving soup. And then this is what it says, the word of God continued to increase and the numbers discipled Disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Because Stephen, who was not one of the twelve disciples, was able to step out and walk in that same authority that Jesus was talking about. And then in Acts 8, 4 through 6, we read about Philip. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. Philip was walking in authority. Matter of fact, Philip's one of my favorite stories because he starts out serving soup in the soup kitchen, then you hear about him here, and then later on he's, he gets the title Philip the Evangelist. He kept moving up. Because he was just obedient to what God had called him to do. But the, the, what I want to point out, though, is this idea that we have authority is not just for the disciples, it's for every single one of us. And that's proof in the scriptures that people that weren't disciples, or one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles, were still walking out in that power. Amen? And here's the thing, is that we have to recognize that there's a need for Jesus. That there's a reason why this is important that we step out into that authority. In Romans 3, 10 through 18, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And the venom of asps is under their lips. Now this scripture that Paul is, is actually he's quoting here from multiple places in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. But the one thing he's trying to point out is that there is a need for salvation because without Jesus, this is where you stand. And if you read through this again, it's not all that good. And it boils down as it's none is righteous. There's not a single one of us on our own that is righteous. And that goes, that's true for every person you see walking down the street. Not a single one of them is righteous. Because the ultimate level is this, is that we are all sinners, and that's why Paul quotes this. He's actually talking to a bunch of Jews. And there's, uh, if Jews were listening to this, they can't refute this because they're hearing all of this stuff over and over and over from the Old Testament that's saying the very same thing that he's preaching. It's something that no Jew can refute and it, it doesn't compete with what the Word of God already says. But it does demonstrate one thing, that every single person needs peace and they need restoration because we don't have it without Jesus. And the truth is, is that when you walk out into the grocery store and you see the people around you, you should actually hurt for those people that aren't, that aren't saved. The Christ inside of you, the desire to imitate Christ, should compel you to have a heart for those people that are lost. Amen? 
Because here's the reality is, is that God loves them just as much as he loves us. It goes on in Romans 3, 10 through 18. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This list just isn't good. But in spite of all of this, God sent his son. John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the very first scripture that I ever memorized when I was growing up. Maybe probably the first one many of you memorized when you were growing up as well. And I think the, the downside of that is that, that it, it almost becomes trite in our lives. We just gloss over it. We don't even think about the power and the reality of what is being said here. God so loved the world, the entire world, unbelievers, that he sent his son, that whoever, whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reality is, is that if we were to look out into the world and see what the world provides, all we would see is brokenness with no hope. And it would be a sad world indeed because there would be no way out. There would be no light at the end of the tunnel. But God sent a solution to the problem that every person is facing. And Jesus Christ can be that fulfillment that everybody is looking for in other things. More than likely, before you were saved, you were looking for fulfillment in other things as well. Sex, drugs, alcohol. Does that mean you're buying us lunch? <laughs> the truth is, is that we were looking for fulfillment in so many things. How many people do you know are trying to find fulfillment in their job? Or in money. If they can just get the, the next nice car, their life's going to be okay. And they look in all the wrong places. Because the truth is, is that there's already a promise of having every need met. There's a promise of health. There's a promise of wellness. There's a promise of God taking care of you and never leaving and forsaking you. And all of this is because of His great and truthfully, from, an, from a human perspective, is his unimaginable love for us. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, that was Jesus speaking, really foreshadowing what he was about to do for each and every one of us. To show the, the amount of love that he has for us. And I think that we have to be cognizant and, and very deliberate of not becoming jaded about the thing the things that we have in jesus christ realize that the treasure that we really have how amazing it really is the truth is if you really thought about what god did from you it should be causing you to burst from the scenes the seams to tell everybody about it second corinthians 4 7 says but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us this treasure that we have inside of us is so incredibly valuable. And the great thing about this treasure is it doesn't run out. It's not like there's a limited amount. When you, when you share this treasure with other people, it's not like you're giving up some of yours. There's more than enough to go around. And the truth is, is we should be bursting at the seams to tell people about this. Because it's such an amazing thing. But the reality is, is there, there are so many people in this world that are are. are being browbeaten by the culture to not, you know, we don't want to push our religion on somebody. Everybody heard that saying? 
I don't want to push my religion on somebody. You should because they're going to die and go to hell if you don't. Do you care about them? Or what about people that say, I'm going to let my kid grow up and make their own decision? Well, the truth is kids make dumb decisions. <laughs> you should make that for them. But you need to teach them because the truth is if you don't preach to your kids, the world's going to preach to your kids and they're going to make a wrong decision. And we're not talking about like, oh, their life might be a little bit more inconvenient. We're talking heaven or hell. This is an eternal thing that you're dealing with. You know, we need to preach to our kids. We need to tell them. You need to say, you know, no, you need to come to church. As long as you live in, in my roof, you're, com you're coming to church. And then we have to trust God because he says if you raise up the child in the way that they should go, then they're going to follow afterwards. We have to trust God to do that part. But it's our part to raise them up right in the first place so that they don't end up walking this world lost. And the thing that I find so uh, mind-blowing to me is, is that if any one of us were to have some other amazing treasure or find some amazing treasure, we would tell everybody about it. We wouldn't even think about it. If you were to win the lottery, I bet you'd tell people about it. If you were to be digging in your backyard and found a big old pot of treasure, you'd probably tell people about it. You may not tell everybody because you don't want it stolen from you. But you'd certainly tell some people about it and you'd be excited about it. The great thing about our treasure is it can't be stolen and it can't run out. We should be sharing it freely. So why is it that we try to hide the most valuable treasure that we have that's inside of us? And if I'm being honest, I've done it myself. You know, we, and, and I don't know what it is. Something about this world has conditioned us to be embarrassed or to be concerned. And truthfully, the, as time goes by, it, it's, it's becoming harder. And, and there may come a time in the future where you're actually going to be risking something to tell somebody about Jesus. Maybe even your life. But you know what? I look at all these other countries that are already dealing with that, and they still do it. Matter of fact, they do it more, more uh, uh, violently than we do, if I can use that word. You know, the Bible says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence because sometimes you have to fight for what we have in Christ. You know, and, 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 and they're, they're meeting in houses, risking their life. Every time they share Jesus, they're risking telling the wrong person that would come in and kill them, but they're still doing it. They're still sharing. They're meeting in houses where it could cost them everything. And sometimes for us, it's hard to get people to come to church on a Sunday morning because football's on. And we, we, we misunderstand how great a thing that we have. The truth is the ability to come and meet with other believers and hang out and see how one another is doing and worship together. It's an amazing privilege. Don't ever become jaded to the privilege that you have because there are many other Christians who risk giving their life to be able to do a fraction of what we're able to do here in the United States. Amen? And the truth is, is that like I said, you don't have to worry about what you have running out. It's not like winning the lottery where if you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you told the world and it hit the news, you'd find out how many relatives you have that you didn't know about. That would be a good thing. Get them saved too. It's not going to run out. You know, when, when God's behind something, it doesn't run out. Do you remember that widow that uh, uh, Elijah was dealing with in uh, was it 2 Kings 4? The oil that never runs out? You remember her life? It was bad. Her husband's dead. She's so broke that she's getting ready to have her kids repossessed. And uh, God says, go ahead and, and pour the oil and it doesn't run out. 
And matter of fact, it didn't run out until they ran out of, of, of pots to put it in. The truth is, the treasure you have inside of you is like that. It's never going to run out. It's never going to be stolen away. And we have this gift inside of us, and we can and should be sharing it with the world. Matter of fact, we looked, we're commanded to do so. And for those of us that are sometimes struggle with sharing the gospel with people because we're worried about what people might say or what they might think, 2 Corinthians 2.17 says this, We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You know, we haven't been offered something invaluable or, or something that is inferior to share with the world. We don't have something that we should have to be concerned about what other people think. You know, when, when people come at you and say, I can't believe you just believe in a fairy tale or some bearded guy up in the sky. You know, when they begin to attack your beliefs, we don't have to worry about somehow they were wrong or, or we are trying to share something that's inferior or invaluable or, or, or crazy because the truth is what we have is amazing and powerful. You're not peddling something that's inferior, that's trying to, we're not trying to hoodwink people. We're not trying to put the wool over their eyes. We're trying to make it where they can have an eternity in heaven with God instead of an eternity separated from him in hell in torment for eternity. And we, we would do well to remember this is an eternal issue. It's not like that they can change their mind once it's all said and done. And I think to, to begin making that an impact on our lives, we need to make sure that we're loving people. Because Jesus loved people. Mark two fifteen through 17 says, As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of the greatest things I can see from this is Jesus loved people. He loved all people, not just some subset of people. Not just the rich people, not just the people that, that looked a certain way or fit, fit some economic model. He wasn't just looking for the elite. He loved everybody. Matter of fact, those people that were, that were super high, those were the ones that tended to dislike Jesus because they figured that they could do it on their own. They didn't need somebody else. But the truth is, is those of us that are, that are at the lower rung, we realize that we can't do it on our own and we, we, we invite Jesus into our life. But he loved everybody, and everybody was welcomed, even the tax collectors and the sinners. I love how they use the word tax collectors in the, in the, Old Test, in the New Testament. It's, I think I'm just going to start calling people I don't like tax collectors. <laughs> they won't know what I'm talking about, but, but you guys will know. Hallelujah. There's a, uh, a friend of mine who was uh, uh, one of the leaders of Overland Missions, and he's a uh, South African guy, so he's got that accent. Uh, but he always calls people lemons. He says, oh, I love calling people lemons because they never know if I'm insulting them or not. <laughs> the reality is, is that we can think of, uh, of sin as a disease. Forgiveness is the cure, and Jesus is the physician. He's the one, he loved us all and he gave everything to make sure that we could be set free. 
And I've come to the conclusion that there's only three types of people that Jesus can't help. There are those who don't know or know of him. There are those who know him but refuse to trust him. And, those, and there are those who won't admit that they need him. The only three people that Jesus can't help. Now the second two, those who know him but, but uh, refuse to trust him are those who won't admit that they need him. There's not much we can do about them except for pray for them, that their, their heart would be softened, their eyes would be opened, because they have to make a decision. You can't make a decision for them. But for the one who don't know of him or who don't know him, that's decidedly our responsibility. We can do something about that. We can tell them about Jesus. We can tell them about the one that loved them so much that he gave up everything so that they could be restored, redeemed, and have eternal life. Amen? Matthew 9.36 is another example about how people, uh, how Jesus saw people. It says in uh, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. My pastor used to say that, you know what, we're always called sheep in the New, in the New Testament. Because I'm not sure if that's an insult or not. <laughs> But the truth is, is that people are like sheep. We're always looking for direction. It's such a provocative description because without a shepherd, sheep are lost. And the same is true for us. Without a shepherd, we walk around lost. And sheep aren't able to take care of themselves. They're defenseless. They're unable to take care of themselves. They need food. They need shelter. The truth is, sheep nowadays, they need to be clipped or their, their wool grows so big that they can't even move. It becomes so heavy that it becomes a burden to them. They can't take care of them themselves. And sheep operate with a herd mentality. They just go with the herd. It's interesting that people tend to do that as well. There's a story about, have you guys ever heard of the Judas goat in the Old Testament? There's a, a story that I, I think describes it very well. He says, I observed this herd instinct a few years ago in a documentary on television. It was filmed in a packing house where sheep were being slaughtered for the meat market. Huddled in pens outside were hundreds of nervous animals, and they seemed to sense danger in their unfamiliar surroundings. Then a gate was opened that led up a ramp and threw a door to the right. And in order to keep the sheep, to get the sheep to just walk up the ramp, the handlers used what is known as a Judas goat. This is a goat that has been trained to lead the sheep into the slaughterhouse. The goat did his job very efficiently. He confidently walked to the bottom of the ramp and looked back. Then he took a few more steps and stopped again. And the sheep looked at each other skittishly and then began to move toward the ramp. And eventually they followed the confident goat to the top where he went through a little gate to the left, but they were forced to turn right and went to their deaths. It was a dramatic illustration of unthinking herd behavior and the deadly consequences it often brings. The truth is, is that people need a shepherd. And you have two options, Jesus or the devil. Jesus will lead you to greener pastures. He'll lead you to that water, to peace and to rest. But the rest of the world, if they don't know Jesus, they're being led to their slaughter, amen. And that should concern us. That should hurt us. If it doesn't, begin to pray that God would give you eyes like His and a heart like His that you would feel. And that compassion should, should, should spur you to be able to share the gospel with others. 
In Luke 4, 16 through 21, it says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood, stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And set to liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus is the answer that we're all looking for. The Jewish rabbis already attributed this scroll, this, this passage in Isaiah that Jesus was reading, reading to the Messiah. And you can imagine their shock when Jesus stands up and basically says, this guy they're talking about, it's me. This scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing. And, and the reference that he's talking about is, is this year of Jubilee. Uh, this whole scripture is talking about that. And uh, uh, the year of Jubilee is described in Leviticus 25. It says every seventh year was a sabbatical year. And you can read about this. Um, and basically, every seventh year was the sabbatical year, and that's when the nation was allowed to rest. The land was allowed to rest. They couldn't plant crops. They couldn't do any of those things because it would let the, the land recover for crops the next seven years. I find it interesting that when, you, when we look back at this stuff, the stuff that God implemented, it turns out it was a good idea. If you don't actually let land rest, it actually becomes where it has no, uh, uh, it becomes unfertile. You can't grow stuff in it. It's why we've had to come up with all kinds of clever ways when we want to grow crops all year round. It's why they switch crops and they do different kinds so that the land isn't completely depleted. But, but it turns out God do something even back then. It's amazing how much you'll find that stuff in the Bible where you're just like, oh, God already had it figured out. And he was telling people so that it would keep things going. But anyway, this is the sabbatical year. It lets the land rest. And then on the year of Jubilee, which was every seven sabbaticals, so every 50 years, um, this year was set apart as, as in the ability to rebalance the economic system. Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold reverted to their original owners and all debts were canceled. And then the land lay fallow as man and beast rested and rejoiced in that year. Can you imagine that? Everybody who had to sell themselves into slavery, they were set free. If you sold property, you got it back. Everything was restored back to the way it was supposed to be, the way that God had intended it to be. And Jesus says, That's, that was about me. He's referring to his ministry, not in an economic or a political sense, but in a physical and spiritual sense. He says, look, I'm here to proclaim liberty and to set the captives free. Recover the sight of those who can't see. Jesus was there to restore things back to the way they were supposed to be. And we get to proclaim this good news. We have the privilege of telling people this amazing thing. And then the gospel is supposed to be about good news. It's not fear-based. We should be telling people that they're forgiven and they're free in Jesus, not that they're going to hell and they're doomed to an eternity. Now, these things are realities. These are the truth. I'm not saying that, that it's not. But we do need to be careful about how we proclaim our message. 
When I used to go to the University of Arizona, there was this old guy that would stand on the mall, the big grass area in the middle of the U of A, and he would just fire and brimstone, and he would yell at all these kids, telling them how terrible they were, how awful they were. They were all going to hell, and it was nonsense like that all the time. And the reality is, is that if they didn't have Jesus, what he was saying was true. They were going to hell. But that wasn't good news. That's not what we're supposed to be sharing. How about we tell people that God has a better plan for the life, that he has something better, that they don't have to be in that situation. Let them know that he loves them and see the difference. Because the truth is, is that none of those college kids were going to hell because of their sin. They were going to hell because they hadn't received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, which was a free gift offered to them. That's what we should be telling people is about God's love and what has been given to them. And that was Jesus' purpose too. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not to condemn them, not to tell them how bad they were, but to seek and save them. And that's our job, is to tell them about Jesus. Amen? And the great part about it is, is that Everybody who believes is not put to shame. Romans 10, 11 through 13 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's saying there's no difference between Jews and Greeks. In our day, it's really easy to talk about that as well, except for you can, you can widen it a little bit. There's no difference between rich and poor, white-collar worker or blue-collar worker. There's no difference between weak or strong, book-smart, street-smart, tall-short, those who grew up in the church or those who never stepped foot in church a day in their life. There is no difference because every single one of those people, if they'll call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's not a, they might be saved, they could be saved, or they just do enough of the right things. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion is about you performing to make whatever God you believe in happy so that you might be saved, that you might tip the scales in your favor. But Christianity is the only one where we don't have to perform for God, but he actually performed so that we would be made right in him. He's the one who did everything. And believing on him guarantees that you won't be disappointed. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't mean you might not have hard times in your life. The truth is you will. If you get born again, the reality is is that one of the greatest services we do is we tell people that, hey, if you get saved, everything's going to be great from here on out because it's not always. Sometimes things get worse. The truth is is that you may not face certain situations once you get born again, but you're probably going to face others that you would have never faced had you not been born again. You're going to face difficulties. The truth is, is that Jesus said, the world hates me, and if it hates me, it's going to hate you. But Jesus will never leave you. God will never forsake you, and he'll get you through any situation. And the reality is, is that when we believe in him, we'll never be disappointed. And we can have an assurance. We can know that we are saved. Every other religion in the world, you're performing to hope that you're saved. Christianity, you can know that you're saved because salvation is only based on putting your trust in what Jesus has already accomplished. Amen. In Romans 10, 14, it goes on to make some important distinctions that we need to think about, though. 
He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have believed? Remember, he, he started in 13. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great news. But how then will they call on him when they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Anybody know the answer to that? The truth is they won't. That's why it's our responsibility. How are they ever going to respond to the gospel if they don't hear the gospel? And that is our responsibility is to share with him. The truth is, is that Jesus did everything, made provision for every single person to be saved, but they have to be told about it. They have to call out to God. They have to receive that salvation. It is our responsibility to tear down every stronghold and every false notion of who God and Jesus is and, and tell them the truth of it. To introduce them to a God who loves them and let them know that he sent his son so that they might be free. They might be forgiven and that they would be made brand new. And the truth is, is that every single person is important. From the littlest of children to the to the most undesirable in society. Every single one of them is important and we need to share with them. And you never know the impact that you're going to have when you share with even one person. We think that, how is it that what I could do could even make a difference? The truth is, is that one is enough. Have you ever heard of the story of the, of the little girl who was walking down the beach and the beach was covered in starfish and the tide was going out? And as she was walking down the beach, she was reaching down and she would grab one starfish and she would run out to the ocean and she would toss it out in the water. And this man is observing her doing this over and over and over again. And there's thousands of starfish on the beach and she's just doing one at a time. And he walks up to her and he says, little girl, what are you doing? You're never going to make a difference. There's just too many of them. And she tossed the one in her hand into the water and she said, I made a difference to that one. And the truth is, it's the same about us. We may not be able to reach everybody, but it'll make a difference to the one that we can. And we never know the impact that we're going to have. This is a, a, a perfect illustration of that. It says, winning a child to Christ is, of course, infinitely valuable in itself, but sometimes we're winning even more. As the following story shows, Edward Kimball, a shoe shop assistant and a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, loved boys. He spent hours of his free time visiting the young street urchins in Chicago's inner city trying to win them for Christ. Through him, a young boy named D.L. Moody got saved in 1858, and Moody grew up to be a preacher. If you know anything of church history, you've probably heard of D.L. Moody. He was a quite successful preacher. And then in 1879, Moody won the Lord. One to the Lord, a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to be a preacher. Meyer won a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman to Christ. Chapman, in turn, grew up to be a preacher and brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. As an athlete evangelist, Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was so successful that another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach. And it was while Ham was preaching that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. And it all started with this young man with this man named Edward Kimball in the 1800s leading a young boy to Christ. You never know the impact that you're going to have by leading even just one person to Christ, sharing the gospel with one person. Never think that you're not doing enough. Just make sure you're doing what God has called you to do. Amen.
And then in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One of the other things you're going to have to overcome is the opposition to sharing the gospel. We need to be prepared that people are going to essentially rebel at what we're trying to share and first understand that it's not you that they hate, it's Jesus they hate. Understand it's not a personal thing. And go ahead and put on that full armor of God because sometimes you're going to have to have thick skin. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be hurt. And the truth is, I'm, if I'm completely honest with you, these are the things that always run through my mind when I, we used to go knock on doors, inviting them to church, and I, every time, I'm, what's going to happen? You know, and I could just imagine they're going to come out and start cussing at me or tell me to get out of here. And you want to know how many times that happened? Never. Not even once. The worst I ever got was I'm not interested. And they closed the door. But we, we imagine all these terrible things that are going to happen in our heads. And the truth is, sometimes people might be a little more aggressive as they're rejecting. But remember, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And we must understand that it's not our responsibility to save them. It's just to share the gospel with them. They're going to have to make a decision. And like I said, Jesus already said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. Know this is coming. Understand that there will be opposition, but also understand that once they have that breakthrough, that they're no longer going to see the cross as folly, but they're going to see it for what it is, the power to save, the power of God. And I can tell you this in my own life. I had people ministering to me and sharing the gospel, and I pushed it away so many times. And I'm glad that people didn't give up on me because I was finally able to say yes. That's one of the things I try to remind myself when I'm sharing the gospel because it seems like we live in a world where nobody wants to hear it. And when we share, they reject it. They push back or they don't want anything to do with it or we're not as successful as we hoped that we would be. But one of the things that I always remember is how many times did I do that before finally one day it clicked. Finally one day God, God got a hold of me. So I'm going to keep on doing it. Whether I'm the seed setting up for the next person or maybe I'm the time that it clicks. But the truth is, this is what we should be doing. And the only thing that I can guarantee you is, I can't guarantee you that they won't get saved if you, don't, if you share with them. Or that they, I can't guarantee you they will get saved if you share with them. But I can guarantee you they won't get saved if you don't. So we need to make sure that we're doing our part, amen? And then finally, one thing I think is really important is that we want to make sure that our focus is on reaching people who are lost. You know, I, I'll tell you honestly, I want our church to grow. I want, our, I want us to have more people, have a greater sphere of influence, because the more people we have, the more resources we have, the more people we can reach for the gospel. But I want to make sure that that's what we're actually doing, is reaching people for the gospel, and not just getting church transfer growth. Romans 15.20 says, and this is Paul speaking, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. We want to see people saved and brought into the church. You know, we don't want to be pe have people transferring from one church to the other. That maybe look good on paper, but the kingdom of heaven is not actually growing. Our mission should be to reach the lost for the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven so that we would have people that were previously unsaved go ahead and give their life to Jesus Christ. Amen.
Church, that's our, that's our goal. That's, that's the first part of our mission statement. Our vision as a church is to reach the lost. And today as we go ahead and finish up the last, uh, the last session of, of Soul Winter Boot Camp, for all of you who have been listening, I hope you're picking up some tips and, and tricks and, and, and just maybe seeing things in a different light so that way we can reach people better. And I want to challenge you guys as we go through, through the, the, the month of July, let's make that a month where, where every single one of you, just once a week, make sure you're telling somebody about Jesus, inviting them to church. Can you imagine that if every single person brought one person to church or got one person saved, if, and if you're uncomfortable with it, you're not quite there yet, just bring them to church. We'll share the gospel with them here. But the truth is, if every single one of us were to have one person give their life to Jesus, the church would double in a month. And we'd have greater sphere of influence. And the thing is, is that works exponentially. What if we could keep that up? You know, we got... Uh, we got 20, 20, 20 adults in here this morning, 25 adults in here this morning. If everybody got one person saved next month, then we'd have 50. And then if we did it again the next month, we'd have 100. It doesn't go 25 a, a month. It, it would go exponentially. And we'd be bringing people into the kingdom of heaven. And people's lives would be changed. They would be set free. So over the next month, I, I want to challenge you. Take the step. You've been given the authority to do it. So take that next step. Tell somebody about Jesus. Tell somebody that God loved them so much that he gave everything that they could be forgiven and free and that they could have eternal security. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.